You're listening to The Review, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2013 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Review, your weekly preview and review of the arts here on Monocle 24, coming to you from Studio One at Midori House here in London, with me, Andrew Muller and Gillian DeBias. Coming up on today's programme, to coincide with the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination, a mountain of books have been published and republished. We'll be looking at three. We'll stop off in Taipei and Milan for some cultural picks and ask whether our fashion tastes are getting a little more mature. Even the likes of Vogue are turning the attention of the mainstream to the elder generation, pointing to designers such as Simone Roja, Nina Ricci and Prada, who've taken inspiration from the aged. And Karen Krasanovich will be here to talk us through some new films, from documentaries to adventures in outer space. I had a daughter. A little girl with brown hair. Tell her that I'm not quitting. A clip there from the much ballyhooed Gravity, one of the titles we'll be discussing later on. Throw in some new music from Finland, and that's a great hour. Coming up here on The Review on Monocle 24. So, yes, hello and welcome to Studio One at Midori House. I'm Andrew Muller. With me here in the studio is Gillian DeBias. Gillian, have you done anything cultural this week? Well, yeah, a surprise. Very last minute, on like three quarters of an hour notice, um, I got invited to uh, the Magic Flute at the ENO. And one of those spontaneous operas. One of the, well, it's always best. Sometimes the last minute things they just are full of surprises. Partly because I don't, I've never really been a fan of opera. Regular review listeners will know how much I love the ballet, but I've never really taken to opera. So, um, is, it, I, is, is, it, is it the whole people with helmets with horns on them screeching incomprehensibly for hours? Yes, thing? yeah, I and, get that. You know, but I, you know, here's someone who loves. Loves musicals, so you you think I'd like opera, but it just for me it doesn't do it. Especially the ENO, which specialises in singing operas in English, that's really always put me off because it just I want to laugh. It just seems that suddenly the lyrics just seem so farcical and bizarre. But I loved this production. It was so inventive that it was directed by um, Simon McBurdie, who's the founder and the artistic director of Théâtre Complicité. And the inventiveness, because it's, it's sort of contemporary, but they use animations, screens. They actually have a Foley artist who does all the sound effects from water and wind and flapping bird sounds under a spotlight so you can see the artefacts. It's, it was one of the most imaginative things I've seen in a long time. That's almost selling me, a, a fellow opera sceptic. This, this is the magic flute on at the ENO now. Yeah, book now. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're listening to The Review on Monocle 24. Now, 50 years ago this month in Dallas, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated by, depending on which interpretation of events one subscribes to, a disaffected former Marine named Lee Harvey Oswald, or a sinister cabal comprising some or other combination of Cubans, Freemasons, Communists, the Illuminati, the Mafia, the Boy Scouts of America, Dave D. Dozy, Mick and Titch, and the (laughs) Dallas chapter of Rotary. The murder was not only the launchpad of the modern conspiracy theory movement, but the founding of a still remarkably profitable Kennedy industry. The 50th anniversary of Kennedy's death was always likely to provoke an unruly stampede by publishers, and so it has proved. Among dozens of new or reissued JFK-related toms are Thurston Clark's 
Last 100 Days, The Letters of John F. Kennedy, edited by Martin Sandler, and Once Upon a Secret, My Hidden Affair with JFK by Mimi Alford. A book which should recoup its advance even if it only sells to everyone else who could make the same claim. Uh, <laughs> joining us now to discuss these titles is the author, journalist and regular review bookworm, Mark Mason. Mark, um, 50 years on, uh, is there anything about Kennedy we still don't know? There is everything we don't know because he didn't tell anyone everything. I mean, that's the... He didn't tell anyone... Well, he told some people some things. Um, but the thing you keep coming back to in all these three books is that he was unknowable, even to Jackie. You know, he would... There's a quote in um, in The Last Hundred Days, the Thurston Clark book. She says... Uh, she's looking. He's looking distant one day and she says, a penny for your thoughts. And he said, if I told them... If I, tell, if I told you my thoughts, they wouldn't be mine anymore, would they? And he's saying that to his own wife. You know, he was so... Um, unknowable, but there are great little details in there that give you clues to different parts of his personality. Um, you know, for instance, his, uh, his his approach to wealth, obviously massively wealthy because of his father. Uh, but he used to have monogrammed handkerchiefs, but he used to fi- fold the handkerchief so the initials were on the inside so that no one could see that he had monogrammed handkerchiefs. This is the, he, the, the great patriarch Joseph uh, P. Kennedy, who is quite plausibly one of the most appalling people in the, 20th century American history. Patriarch, yeah, the several other words have been applied to him apart from patriarch, yes. <laughs> But, I mean, oh, oh, it's a public record that he bought the election. I mean, it, without yes, him did. being corrupt, JFK would never have been president because there's this huge amount of votes in Chicago that got bought. And Nixon could have sh- sued the defeated candidate. So, I mean, it, because of all the uh, photographs and, and television, the myth has become so strong. Do you think had, it, had, had the assassination not happened at a time when multimedia and photography was here, would, would he be as covered and of uh, interest as he is? Um, I think probably if anyone was going to be, you would be in that job, if you're president of the USA, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be guaranteed. I'm thinking if the same thing happened to Obama now, it would still be massive. But of course, the great thing that happened with JFK is no one knew that much about him. So you can always project teenagers who had his mm-hmm. poster on their bedroom wall could project their ideas onto mm-hmm. him. And as someone said about Hendrix, when Hendrix died very young, much younger than JFK, but still very young, um, uh, someone said, great career move. You know, if you want to maintain this iconic image, being assassinated before you've actually had a chance to do very much is a good way of going well, about it. Well, um, Thurston Clark's book is very much a subscriber of that. Thurston Clark is a, a, a unregenerate supper of the JFK Kool-Aid, I think it's fair to say. The the last the subtitle of the book is An Intimate Portrait of a Great President, a, a claim I would have said was debatable on a number of levels. We did speak to Thurston Clark uh, not long ago on this program. Here is a clip of what he had to say. JFK was a rather timid president for the first two years of his presidency. One of his advisors, uh, Paul Samuelson, the economist, said that he was a nervous man who was always checking the political ice before he moved ahead. Well, suddenly in June 1963, he stopped checking the ice and he delivered two speeches, the first at American University, in which he called for a test ban and negotiations in Moscow to bring about a test ban. And the second was a civil rights speech given the next day in which he finally called civil rights a moral issue and announced that he was sending a civil rights bill to Congress. So I don't have complete admiration for Kennedy throughout his three years. I think the Bay of Pigs was a terrible mistake. But I do think that in the last five or six months, he made incredible strides towards solving the two great problems facing the United States then. And one was a possible race war and the other was nuclear war.
That's Thurston Clark speaking uh, on Monocle 24 a few months ago. But right there, I think, he's kind of undermined his own case. He's basically admitted that Kennedy did nothing for the first two years of his presidency other than a lot of drugs and work experience interns. Um, and there is the... This is what's always hovered over Kennedy. It, it, it's the great what-if, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You, and uh, as you were saying, you can project onto him anything you like. I think it's, that's absolutely right. I don't think there's very much point trying to... I mean, you know, the, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis is the one big thing people always put in his defence, that without him handling that the way he did, the world could literally have blown up. So that is one thing in his favour. But I think you're right. What's fascinating is the personal stuff. And the book that I really enjoyed more than I thought I was going to, looking at these three, was the Once Upon a Secret, the one about the uh, intern who had an affair with him. She was called Mimi Beardsley then. She's now called Mimi Alford. And I thought that's just going to be, you know, kiss and tell. And then you look at the author biog and the photo and you think she's going to be respectable she's not going to tell you very much but actually it's fascinating as to how that two-year affair she worked at the white house in 62 63 and she had an affair with him and all the details on that are fascinating like the fact he never kissed her it's very very even even in the act of intimacy he's still keeping that distance you know but then the effect it had on her marriage in that she was getting um married to this guy and she told jfk i've got to stop sleeping with you i'm you know apart from him she'd never slept with anyone uh, and she wasn't going to sleep with her husband before the wedding. And she's supposed to see JFK one more time. She's now living out of Washington. She's going back to Washington uh, in December 63. So, of course, she never gets to see him that final time. She's in the car with her fiancé on November the 22nd, 63, and they hear on the radio he's been shot. And she just blurts it out. You know, how could you not? She got really but involved with him. But it's all that surprising. And, no, no, but a, what's... What's great about the rest of the story is the way that affected her marriage, that her husband couldn't cope with it. You know, he's thinking he's about to be the first man ever to sleep with this woman, and he's not. And the only other guy who's done it before is the president of the USA. And he's intimidated by that from the start. And she writes it brilliantly, the way the marriage develops, the way uh, it affects her attitudes to secrecy and to things in the relationship. It's fascinating. I was flicking through all th- uh, all three books. The two of them, they're really sort of more serious, the letters um, and the last days, have great archive photographs. The one that doesn't is the one where I mm. wanted the photographs, which was the no, secret. I, I, I wanted the photographs. But the, although the JFK has um, the, the last hundred days um, has the photos, it also has the details. Mm. And the scrum of it is so spooky that he was obsessed from the beginning with the fact that he might be assassinated, JFK. And a couple of months... He, he be- was taking a lot of drugs. In <laughs> fairness, which, 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 well, I mean, this, this, is, this is documented. You know, the, and actually reading... Not, read- those mind, not those mind-altering drugs. He have, was taking have, a lot to give him highs, and he was taking a lot for his back. But, but the, he, he was taking a, a mixture of drugs that would incline someone towards paranoia, though. Perhaps, I'd have yeah, thought. No, but but, uh, but what, what's remarkable to me, reading other previous biographies of Kennedy, especially Daleks, which, which is quite, Robert Daleks, which is quite good on the intricacies of his personal life, is, is frankly where he actually found time to run America at all. I know. The two, th- the two things he's famous for, his bad back and all the women he slept with. And you would think they would sort of, you know, how could he do the one with the <laughs> other? But, 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 but which between them sound like a full-time job, yeah. frankly. <laughs> well, maybe that's why he didn't achieve anything. Maybe he was too busy <laughs> was saying all this. But the stuff about the assassination is tomorrow, November the 11th, um, is the 50th anniversary of... November the 22nd coming up is the 50th anniversary of his death. Tomorrow, November the 11th, is the 50th anniversary of JFK going to Arlington Cemetery, the National Cemetery. He'd Mm. never been there. And he went there just on a private visit. And he said, it's so peaceful, I could stay here forever. (laughs) And then 11 days later, well, 14 days later, he was back there forever. Um, But yeah, the stuff about him, a couple of months before it happened, he was acting out an assassination thing with friends as a joke with ketchup on his, he puts ketchup on his stomach to pretend he'd been shot. Looking back on it, it's so spooky.
Yeah, but it's, it's a thing that must occur to all presidents of the United States. The odds are really pretty gruesome. I mean, Kennedy was the, the fourth uh, to be shot dead in office. So it's not like there weren't precedents. You can imagine these things occurring to anybody who And who there's takes that thing that, that, that he picked up on, that every president elected in a year divisible by five for the last hundred years had died in office and two of them had been assassinated. Mm. Um, Reagan nearly kept that going because Reagan very yeah. nearly got assassinated. Yes, he did. Um, the and bo- I'm sure Obama's uh, uh, worried. It's quite spooky. But I've, I've known political journalists over the years and they tell you when, whenever you cover a US president, yeah. but there's always about, I think it's about the fourth or the fifth uh, car in the convoy of 87 cars that the president has is known as the blood wagon. Because as soon as you're elected president, one of the first things they get you to do is donate some of your own blood. Mm. And then they carry that around. And you have to do it regularly to keep it fresh so that if in the event of it being needed very quickly, it's there. Um, the one we haven't discussed in detail yet is, is the letters of John F. Kennedy. Um, do we learn anything significant from his correspondence? Not really. A lot of it is sort of official. Um, you know, it's a good book. It's If you want a, an introduction to his life, it's a good book. But a lot of it is sort of the official telegram. My favourite book was... Favorite letter in the book was the first one when he is, I think, eleven years old, something like that. Um, sorry, twelve years old, and he's writing to his father asking for more pocket money. Mm. And it's very sweet, and he justifies it. You can see he's going to be a politician because he goes into all the arguments as to why he should have more money. When I'm a scout, I have to buy canteens, haversacks, blankets, ponchos, things that will last for years. Um, so I'm going to need some more money if I'm still allowed to buy a chocolate marshmallow. It's, <laughs> it's really sweet. You kind, kind of lucky that Joseph didn't have him lobotomized and put him in an <laughs> asylum, which is, of course, oh. what, what happened to one of his other troublesome children. Um, Talk not so much about Kennedy though, but about this. Is, this is such a, a a thing that publishers do, and they're terrible suckers for anniversaries. Um, at what point does the market become overcrowded? I don't think it has with this, by the looks of it. Like I say, even the book that I thought was just going to be another story about JFK and his affair is brilliant because it's how you tell it. And with a story like this, especially one where, as we keep saying, we're projecting the story onto the photo rather than there being a definitive version of what JFK was like. It's almost like a fairy tale that you can, a Grimm's fairy tale or something, you can keep retelling it. And or Shakespeare, you can keep reinventing it for it, centuries. I mean, there has been like a tsunami of books published. But the interesting thing is, I think there have been some republished books and books that were almost impossible to find. But now that they're being republished, there's some... He's, um, he's one of those people, he, he, and of course he comes from the great age of fame. I think your point earlier mm. is fair that mm. you're not famous in a way. Even Obama is not going to capture people's attention in the way that JFK mm. did. You know, back then we had JFK, Elvis, the Beatles. Marilyn Monroe. It was fun. Everybody mm. knew them. Even if you didn't n- like them, you knew them. So I think maybe that's what we want. Maybe that's yeah. why we do like these stories coming back all the time, is that those personalities are there and we keep projecting new stuff onto them. Mark Mason, thank you as ever for joining us on the review. We're going to take a short break and then when we, we come back, we'll be asking if our fashion tastes are becoming a little more mature. The Monocle Book Tour has touched down in the warmer parts of the globe and this November we'll be packing the snowshoes and chilling out in the Nordic region. Starting on November the 18th in Stockholm and taking in a different country each day, we'll be schussing through Oslo and Copenhagen before ending up in Helsinki on the 21st and we'll be bringing you live shows right here on Monocle 24 from each stop along the way. So if you want to hear how the Monocle Guide to Better Living is going down in the snowier parts of Europe, point your mouse towards book.monocle.com and be sure to tune in to Nordic Leg of the Monocle Book Tour this November on Monocle 24.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Review here on Monocle 24 with me, Gillian Tobias and Angie Muller. And we turn now to one or other of Monocle's editors and journalists to give us their take on a new release or trend or event. Today, just for a change, we're taking the wider and more mature view. Here's David Michon to give us his take on an unlikely trend appearing in fashion, photography and film. I am dressed up for the theatre of my life every day. I get such a kick out of it. I just I like to feel better dressed than other people. This is what I am. This is what you get. <laughs> Last year, Ari Seth Cohen turned his popular blog, Advanced Style, into a book and then a film. In May, Albert Meisels began production on a documentary film on 92-year-old style icon Iris Apfel. And this month, famed fashion photographer Tim Walker has put to printed page the granny alphabet. It would seem as if our sartorial fixations are maturing. Even the likes of Vogue are turning the attention of the mainstream to the elder generation, pointing to designers such as Simone Roja, Nina Ricci, and Prada, who've taken inspiration from the aged. Why? As Cohen points out, these women have a very particular and appealing confidence about them. They aren't dressing to trends, he says, but only for themselves. And furthermore, there's a sense that an octogenarian can avoid the pastiche of vintage, too. It's simply plying through their own wardrobes and pulling out pieces worn 30 or 40 years ago. Cohen's work and documentaries such as Fashionistas, which premieres this month on UK's Channel 4, are focused on the more outrageously attired. They're the ones with Escada suits in their closets. The way I dress releases me from the tyranny of fashion. I like wearing short skirts and people must look at me and think, who does she think she is? I don't give a toss. I'm a bit unusual for my age. I don't give a damn whether I shock people. And yes, you think about death, but you choose life. You don't get a second chance. But for Walker, who is no stranger to the fashion world, in fact, he greases its wheels, the fascination is with the brilliantly reckless lack of responsibility. This, he writes, is what unites the very young and the very old. Not the self-aware style set who seem in constant pose and need a helping hand to cross cobblestone, enjoyable as they may be to observe. This is not theatricality, but expression. Maybe it was inevitable that we'd be curious about what happens after 30, or even simply that this niche would eventually be explored and have its 15 minutes. And how heartwarming that those 15 minutes aren't in mockery but supported by those, like Walker, who are hailed for their keen sense of aesthetic. The result is a cultural moment I fully support, not only because I have fond memories of my own grandmother, an image of her elegantly pulling off her earring to answer the phone, and that this is a good reminder of that, but that it's underwritten by an understanding of fashion that has little to do with celebrity, brand, or trend, but personality. For Monocle, I'm David Michon. Thank you, David. Suitably inspired later on, I'm going to be getting out my braces, spats and walking stick, perhaps tying an onion to my belt. Um, You're listening to The Review on Monocle 24. It's time now for our weekly music segment. Finland has been working hard to assure its music as a cultural export for some time now, not least through Minister for European Affairs and Foreign Trade, Alexander Stubb, who might one minute be at a fisheries meeting and the next at a music industry conference. Another arm of the Finnish government's music drive is Music Finland, whose focus is to promote awareness of their nation's music, both at home and abroad. Rico Salamar is their UK project manager, and I'm delighted to say he joins us now in the studio to share some new music from Finland with us. Um, Riku, welcome to the review. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, how valuable 
potentially do does Finland see music as you know to its economy? Well, it's it's um, it's always you can look at the the question in in different ways. Obviously, there's direct income to the to the um, government in tax money and, and royalties and all that, but also there's a lot of um, indirect income through tourism and, and all that. The kind of country profile, country brand, but um, we see a lot of business potential in it as well, like like all the um, the creative industries, like the gaming industry and all that. So um, we. We know that it's the exports of Finnish music at the moment is about 35 million euros, but there's much more potential in it. So for other countries around the world, how receptive are they? It seems by the, by the sound of what you're saying, the results, they, they are. What is it about the Finnish music that's capturing their imagination? It's a good question. I mean, it's, it's, very, um, it's very unique, I suppose, but it depends on, on the genre. Like... Um, some people say metal music is what Finland is famous for, and it's 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 the truth, but it's not the only truth. We have a lot of classical music, and look at Sakari Oramo on on BBC Symphony Orchestra or Esa-Pekka Salonen on on Philharmonia in London, so um, or contemporary folk or jazz. So um, it's hard to say. There's so much music. Okay, well, you put um, three tracks in for us to listen to today. The first is by, um, well, obviously, the, the trigonometry enthusiasts called Sine Cos Tan. Um, tell us a bit about them. Well, it's it's an interesting um, interesting band. The other half of the band is a guy called Jori Hulkonen, and he, he's had a 20-year career as a DJ and producer. He's worked, um, among others, with Chris Love from uh, Petra Boys. And um, it's, it's really cool, synth-pop. Uh, duo, and they have a new album called uh, Afterlife, just just came out two weeks ago. So it's quite interesting. Okay, well let's hear a track from Sign Coast Town. This is Limbo. Limbo with uh, by Sign Coast Tan, rather the first choice of this week's guest music reviewer Riku Salamar from Music Finland. I quite liked that. It reminded me a bit of I was trying to figure out who it reminded me of, and I got there eventually. A bit, <laughs> it's a bit Echo and the Bunnymen ish, I think, sort of yeah. late eighties gothic pop. Um, I did want to ask you: um, Do Finnish modern Finnish music artists generally sing in English? Mainly, yeah. Have but they just decided that Finnish doesn't quite work as a pop dialect, or are they worried that just no one else outside Finland will understand them? It depends on the music. There's some like dreamy pop bands that sing in Finnish, and they work abroad as well because it's you can't really hear the lyrics. But um, I, I guess English works works better. So. And what about the visuals? I mean, um, do they ha- do the Finnish people have their own style when it comes to visualizing music videos and when they the production values of their music videos? What, what are the music videos like for this band in particular? I I guess we're close, quite quite close to the nature, so you can see a lot of you know nature um, images in the videos. I, I might say, mm-hmm. yeah. Is there um, is there something different? Do you think that diff- because obviously when people think about uh, Scandinavian music, it tends to be Sweden that gets all the attention because possibly just because of the size of the country. Finland is a a much smaller country than Finland, but is there a a sense of competition with with Sweden? 
No, not really. I, I think the Swedes have been well organized for decades already. I, I don't think it's about the music, really. It's it's about how you how you push the push the acts and and uh, how organized you can be in in exporting music. Well, the the, the second track you've bought uh, for us to listen to today from your your selection of modern Finnish uh, pop. This is this is Phantom. Um, introduce them, if you would. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, Down tempo. Um, uh, electro electronic music and um, it's quite interesting. It's it's jazz singing uh, combined with down tempo uh, beats and they actually got a lot of attention just recently because the XX picked them up and and blogged about them on uh, posted about them on social media and um, so they got a lot of attention in the UK media um, and now they're preparing their debut album. Okay, well let's hear what the XX and others were so excited about. This is Phantom with Over. was Phantom with Over, the second choice of this week's guest music reviewer Rico Salomar of Music Finland. Um, your, your third choice, which we'll hear shortly, this is a, I'm going to have a go at pronouncing this, so help help <laughs> me along if I get it wrong. This is Jako Aino Kalevi. Jako Aino Kalevi. It's <laughs> a difficult was, one, I know. It wasn't a bad <laughs> try, I think, it, in it, fairness. Yeah. I, I, I got that on the dartboard, at least. Um, He's an intriguing backstory. He works part-time as a a Helsinki tram driver, I believe, which is, of course, you know, makes him part of a noble lineage. Elvis Presley was a truck driver, so there's that whole leap from piloting public transport and becoming an influential (laughs) musician thing uh, going on there. Um, Tell us a bit about him, if you would. He's also a a model, actually. But the thing is that I'm really excited about him because he's the first ever Nordic act on a Domino label. So uh, he just got got signed a couple of months ago, and and um, the debut EP is coming out in a, in a few weeks, and then uh, debut album um, early next year. Domino, we should stress, are a very very well respected and influential British indie label. Yeah, exactly, and this is their uh, imprint called uh, Weird World. So I'm I'm quite excited. Uh, this track is called. Um Again, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. It's just a whole load of U's. <laughs> yeah, it's just ooh ooh. Okay. Um, well, let's hear a bit of it. This is um, I, this pronunciation is never going to happen. It's it's more <laughs> or less Yako I know Kalevi with ooh ooh. Quite like that. That's sort of craftworky. If, yeah. if they drove trams in Helsinki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he combines like I don't know, new wave, dub, uh, disco, even jazz. It's it's quite cool. Um, before we let you go, we do need to ask you about uh, the Ya 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 festival. Yeah, there's a there's a strong connection um, um, with the Nordic countries, the all the five: Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, and. Um, uh, we have a cl- monthly club night called Ya 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 in London. We've been doing it for, for the last four years now. And this is the next step. There, there's a festival at the Roundhouse this weekend. 
And what I love about it, it says here, not only do you have music from uh, all the Nordic countries, but you have something called uh, Nordic Sound Bites, the taste of your favorite tune. Yeah, there's a lot of Nordic food on, on offer as well. Uh, have they kind of organized it so the food matches the artist? Yeah, they, yeah, they have a kind of a actually a collaboration really? with on, the acts yeah. as well. What's on the menu? This is This is actually quite interesting. Yeah, there's is, different uh, cuisines and, and dishes from, from the Nordic countries. Yeah. No one's... Is any, uh, have the, do you know if the Icelanders are really just going all the way and actually s- serving puffin, which I know just <laughs> freaks people out massively if they're I'm not, not from Iceland. I think sure, it has to but match the so. music, Andrew. Yeah. Okay, well, that's uh, Ya Ya Ya, the Nordic festival, which is occurring at the Roundhouse... Um, Today, really, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. it is. Today, the and Roundhouse, uh, the Roundhouse in Camden. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're going to play you out shortly. Uh, this is our music review guest this week, Rico Salomar, UK project manager for Music Finland. Uh, this is Husky Rescue, who played right here at Midori House uh, this past June, and this is recorded live here in the building, Husky Rescue with Treehouse. So clap your hands together. Make beats for Kathleen, cartwheels for melody, feel the fights in harmony. This is us together, right where I want to be. Hardships are history, and I swear you won't believe. So clap your hands together, make beats for Kathleen, cartwheels for melody, feel the fights in harmony. This is us together, right where I want to be. Hardships are history, and I swear you won't believe. That was Husky Rescue with Treehouse from their Midori House session on the 8th of June. You can download that culture show from monocle.com if you want to hear more of that. Or if you're in London, get yourself down to the Roundhouse in Camden this weekend where Husky Rescue are playing at the Ya 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 Music Festival. We're getting out of studio now for our weekly guide from a city around the world. Today, we're crossing to Taipei to hear what's coming up over the coming days. And reporter Chris Fitch is our guide. Some people try to pick up girls and get called assholes. It's never happened to Pablo Picasso. The biggest event to have on your radar in Taipei this weekend is Art Taipei 2013, the longest-running art fair in Asia. Now in its 20th year, the show has adopted the theme After 20, 20 After, with exhibitions, galleries and performances reflecting on the past 20 years and simultaneously prophesizing the next. With galleries and buyers from all over the globe, but with a core domestic presence, this year's event promises to further build bridges between Asia and the rest of the art world. You can't miss it. Just head to the Taipei World Trade Center, right next door to Taipei 101, only the third tallest building in the world. If you fancy a sit down at the cinema after that, with a movie featuring a little less predictable Hollywood drama and a little more jaw-dropping aerial cinematography, then make sure you watch Beyond Beauty, Taiwan from Above. This feature-length film, featuring bird's-eye view footage of Taiwan's natural landscapes right across the island, smashed domestic box office records upon its release. It's the most widely released Taiwanese documentary in history, available to watch now at cinemas across Taipei. When you've had enough of all that calm and beauty, 
you'll want to come back down to earth with a crash and a bang as you gallop over to Xinzhuang Culture and Arts Center for the start of the 2013 New Taipei International Drum Festival. Promising technologically innovative drumming with hip-hop, stunts, drama, lasers and other visual effects, this is the perfect way to get your heart racing this weekend. Next up, as the hot wet summer gives way to a cool dry autumn, join the residents of Taipei as they warm up with a trip north to Beitao, the local mountain hot springs, as the Taiwan Hot Spring and Fine Cuisine Carnival kicks off. <laughs> Bringing together two of Taiwan's biggest passions, nature and food, you can experience the carnival atmosphere from the comfort of your own hot and steamy volcano-heated bath. Come to Beitou for a hot spring bath during the winter. Bath in the good spa, test the delicious meals. What a happy life! Finally, how better to round off all this excitement than with a show by Ciro A, the ultimate human orchestra. From Japan, they mix electronic music with optical illusions and physical theater to create a multimedia cocktail like you've never experienced before. They'll be closing the 2013 Digital Performing Art Festival, a project for new and visionary creations spread across the cities of Taipei and Kaohsiung. Just try not to get mesmerized by all those flashing lights. For Monocle in Taipei, I'm Chris Fitch. You're listening to The Review here on Monocle 24. Still to come, the latest exhibitions in Milan and our fortnightly film review. Stay tuned. Culture on Monocle 24 is untouchable. Go on, just try and do it. Try and grab a handful of the top-grade cultural radio that we're dishing out and see if you can touch it. Well, exactly. Luckily, though, you can feel it. Feel the passion of the unusually button-bright presentation. It's a fantastic contrast, and it's one of those ones that ask you to look at the brushwork, to look just at the canvas. Feel the craftsmanship in the breathtaking live Midori House sessions. You know, I consider myself an entertainer, so I'm really about communication. I'm not really about expressing myself so much as trying to communicate with people and bring them to tears or bring them to laughter or what have you. Feel the lovingly hand-stitched production and, most of all, feel the love of art. It's there and it's true, but it's really only a small part of his work. Feel the love of fiction. Feel the love of film. Feel the love of music. Feel the love, generally. It is the most extraordinary collation of works that you would never normally see together. Why not invite me round? Culture with Robert Bound is a well-behaved house guest and a joy to entertain. That's Culture with Robert Bound, premiering every Monday at 1900 hours UK time, right here on Monocle 24. Welcome back. It's Saturday. You're listening to The Review with me, Gillian Tobias and Andrew Muller. And we're off to Italy now, Milan, in fact, to get the critics' view on what the city's contemporary arts calendar offers this month. Monocle's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallo sat down this week with Jaya Politi, editor of Flash Art International, to hear her best picks for art lovers. Not surprisingly, a few established names have caught her eye. So, Jay, what's on this week in Milan, the must-sees in the art world? The Andy Warhol show is at the Palazzo Reale. Andy Warhol has a very interesting um, sort of, not exactly retrospective, but a choice of artworks from the 
Peter Brand collection. Peter Brand is one of the most renowned collector in close to New York, actually. He lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, and he opened already a foundation there, I think, three years ago or so. Anyway, he was the first to collect Andy Warhol, and uh, what we're seeing here is definitely a whole collection of flower paintings. And then two interesting, one is the Last Supper, which is huge. I didn't expect it to be so big, and it's in the main room of Palazzo Reale. And the other one is a very interesting portrait of Jesus, of Christ, which has the -the glow-in-the-dark kind of effect. So you can only see it with the black neon projected on it. And I think that's really absolutely cool. I'd never seen that before. So I thought that was like almost a new painting from Andy Warhol. And now with the, the flower paintings, stylistically, this is early Warhol. So yes. how did that you know, strike you when you, you were there looking at those paintings? It's funny because by knowing this story that everyone kind of rejected them at the beginning when, when he came out with the idea of the flower painting and now the flower being the most iconic probably image from Andy Warhol, to me Andy Warhol especially, but also the flowers, they always, no matter what, look very current. Another very interesting show that just opened is Ayora in Calzadilla at Palazzo Cusani, but it's supported by the Fondazione Trussardi. And uh, they are a Mexican duo living in New York City. And what's very interesting, uh, they have a very ironic yet social approach to performance. A very funny performance is uh, when you go up the stairs <laughs> you basically see a piano you just see the piano and at some point there is a guy coming off the piano and playing from inside the piano on the keyboard so last but not least we have um the show at uh, hangar bicocca the, the show that is actually opening now is Dieter Roth and uh, Dieter Roth is actually not so emerging he's uh, he's been in the scene for 50 years and uh, he's was born in Hanover but actually lived in Switzerland all his life where he died in 1998 I believe that he was one of the first to use uh, yes found object but specifically rotten food at the space at the Angarbicocca which is a very kind of industrial like industrial looking space they are showing about a hundred pieces, a hundred works from Dieter Roth, and a lot of his scripts and also drawings and paintings, but also his installations. And that was Gia Politi, editor of Flash Art International, sharing her picks from Milan with Ivan Cavallo. Next, we find ourselves lost in space at the Cannes Film Festival and amidst AIDS activists as we turn our attention to film. Not one to stick with one genre. Film critic Karen Krasanovich's selection for our show today spans 3D sci-fi to documentary with a touch of film industry voyeurism mixed in. Karen Krasanovich, welcome back to the programme. It's very nice to be here. Um, We start with Gravity, which has been much ballyhooed, as I said at the top of the (laughs) programme. But I just just like saying (laughs) ballyhooed. It has been. What was that word again? Ballyhooed. Thank you. Yes. It has been. That's Thank right. Thank you for the opportunity and to say ballyhooed again. <laughs> I just want to make I'll you stop happy. Now. You know? <laughs> um, it's it has been, and 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 it deserves to be much ballyhooed because it is an excellent piece of filmmaking. It is in its way as uh, groundbreaking as Avatar, and it of course is uh, returned to form for uh, Alfonso Cuarón, who needs to keep 
his uh, filmmaking uh, level up because you are only as good as your last movie. He spent $105 million on this. Wouldn't it have been cheaper just to go to the moon? <laughs> just to go to the moon. One would think, although Karen? that's that's relatively small budget considering. I often agree with you. I went to the movies last night. Mm. I saw it on the biggest screen. Mm-hmm. I hated it. Did you really want I thought it was the most banal script. And to me, Sandra Bullock was like Miss Congeniality in a spacesuit. Mm. It was a, a spacesuit. It was absolutely absurd her being in space. It doesn't have... No, that's right. I agree. It was like having... Best she, place she's for a, us, some might suggest. She's a medical... She's a wonderful actress, a wonderful actress, I think, and a wonder, has a wonderful career. But you can't, you know... It's not a film you warm to. Then again, it is out in outer space. It's pretty hard to be warm in outer space. Um, it is It is not as emotionally engaging as Children of Men, let's say. It isn't. Uh, it's really more of a technological showcase. That's really what gravity is. Um, also, I was told if you have if you have vertigo, you shouldn't go and see it. And luckily, I had a friend who had vertigo who couldn't come, so I thought that was interesting. Um, it it isn't the kind of film that everybody is going to like unless you're really tuned to um, 3D to stunning long shoots to how did they do that kind of scenes. Uh, but I agree, I agree with you, and also I think that George Clooney's character. <gasps> It's really annoying. I wanted to throw back the floating bits of 3D objects at him. He was he was one of those irritating people who mm. always thinks he has to be funny. Every line is. And here they are, floating in outer space, mm. lost, about to die. Yeah. And he's making these ridiculous quips. It was absurd. It was you'd think you would save them for a bigger audience, wouldn't you? <laughs> it was like he was a fictional character already. I mean, he was a very difficult, difficult character. To, but, I mean, script the script that, because I, I worked on the film um, in about t- in 2010 uh, as as the research department, mm. as a researcher, and um, the script that I read, I can't remember because they grabbed the, the mm. usually they let you they let you keep the script, but this time they took it back. Um, the, the script that I read, I thought was very very exciting. Now I think they shot pretty close to that, but they had a variety of different actresses, as with with most films. This is not a big story that um, actresses are attached and then float away, as it were. <laughs> um, but it's if if you're expecting a European heartthrob romance, then you're not going to get it. What you are going to get is something that is um, a hat tip to Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, Space Odyssey, that's, that's right. Um, and it is very technologically advanced, and, and it's doing very well at the box office, despite a big budget. But the problem is it took four years to make. Uh, so Hollywood doesn't really have that kind of... Uh, it doesn't have that kind of business model. So what's going to happen with this next one? Uh, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. We have a clip from Gravity. It goes something like this. Astronaut is off-structured. Dr. Do? Stone is off-structured. What do I do? Dr. Stone's detached. No. You must detach. If you don't detach, that arm's going to carry you too far. Listen to my voice. You need to focus. I'm losing visual of you. In a few seconds, I won't be able to track you. Is there somebody down there looking up, thinking about you? A little girl with brown hair. Tell her that I'm not quitting. It's hard for me to judge, having very little experience of being adrift in a (laughs) zero-gravity environment. I'm not sure that's how people would talk. No, it's a film. It's not a documentary. 
Um, it, it's it's a film. It's it is a fictionalized piece, and and I do agree that there was. I mean, people are are there. There've been well, there've been a lot of arguments, particularly online, uh, from scientists going, you know, this right is this is right, that's not right. How come her hair isn't floating? You know, the stuff annoying stuff like that. But um, we do. I mean, it is a story. It's 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 a it's a it's a metaphor for life but on Earth. To me, it was like when you take a film like Apollo. Uh, Thir- uh, 13, the mm. film. I think it's like, you know, reality is more exciting than fiction. Mm. And I found that way more... When they say, you're on the edge of your seat, you're not. I felt like it was Shepard and Studio. They were floating in a tank. Lots of effects. I didn't mm. feel on the edge of my seat where I did with Apollo 13. That's a real story. And did, I found that much more exciting. Did you see the... the there was a, a documentary about Apollo 13, which is actually better than the film. Yeah. And well, I saw that I saw that beforehand. But... But then again, even documentaries, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute, even they are not really the truth, mm. because basically there is no truth. Well, on that cheery note, um, <laughs> we'll move along to, to Seduced and Abandoned. The, the, the movie business, of course, is always happy making films about itself. Yeah. Um, Seduced and Abandoned, is it, is it documentary, is it comedy, or is it negotiate a path somewhere between the two? It's, you know, I, uh, I, I know people thought that this was a really terrific, and it's, it's, it's a fun film. Don't get me wrong, particularly watching um, Alec Baldwin wander around and, and talk about the film industry. That's always good. And it's in Cannes. And you have to understand that you know people think that Cannes is this. Well, you've, you've been, haven't you, probably many times. Cannes, you think, oh, wheeler dealers, beautiful girls, cigars, and you know, champagne. Well, what it is, it's a lot of talk. Cannes is a lot of talk. People will occasionally say, you know, hey, I'll meet you someplace where it matters. Um, uh, so the fact that they're going there to Cannes, they're at the Cannes Film Festival looking for money automatically makes this this whole project dubious. Nobody really goes to Cannes to do business. You just go there to show your profile. From the clip, it does seem that there is still a lot of talk. Will this interest anyone beyond the film industry? Yeah, it will. Anybody that, that I mean, everybody's got a script in them, right? I don't. But uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody does. Everybody's got a novel and a script. So if you're interested in your life story that's going to make a film, then definitely you're going to be interested in seeing this. It sounds a bit like this. What are you doing in town? We're making a film. I get it. So you're making a documentary about trying to get financing. That's right. Never enough money. We need between 15 and, say, $18 million. 15, 20 million too much. 10 million. 4 to 5 million. Your name will be on the screen as the producer of my next film. You ready to put up 15 million? What? Movie business is the worst lover you've ever had. You are seduced and abandoned over and over and over again. I must tell you, I'm optimistic. You're shaking your head there, Karen. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it, people think that getting, and I run into this all the time, uh, people think that just getting enough money to make the movie is going to be enough to make the movie. Well, financing is just a very small part of what it takes to bring a film, let's say, like Gravity, to to uh, theaters everywhere, in Poughkeepsie or wherever it might be, Hong Kong, wherever. And just finding the money is just the beginning. And also another thing is that people are talking about the heartbreak of making a movie. It's not, you know, you're not finding fam, you know, you're not trying to find food for your family here. You're trying to tell a story that really costs a lot of money to tell. So in a way, it's, it's, it's an interesting document and it's, and it is funny, but I think it tells a story that we're all, we all kind of know. Is, is the, is the movie business, which I don't know terrifically well as I, I, as I used to know the music business, but is it one of those things that the by nature of it, you will actually learn far more 
far more about it, not necessarily from a documentary, but from outright satire, because the best film ever made about the reality of music is, of course, This is Spinal Tap, which is only regarded as a satire by people who've never toured with rock groups. Well, you know, truth is is stranger than fiction. And, and, you know, what do they say? The difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense, Mm -hmm. uh, because fact doesn't. doesn't. Uh, And I think that's probably right. If if you tried, if you were interested in trying to make a movie, you'd run into just the crazy kind of things. You run into people that want to give you money, but they need to be dyed white and stand on their head naked in a room. You know, all sorts of <laughs> strange things happen. And uh, th- this is any time that you get uh, money, ego, and fame mixed up, you're going to run into problems. You're run- going to run into weirdness. Well, a more serious documentary about an infinitely more serious mm. subject, uh, How to Survive a Plague. This is the, the chronicle of um, ACT UP and the, the Treatment Action Group who uh, were early campaigners for, for AIDS to be taken seriously. Yes, it actually is. It's. I mean, I, I feel very passionate because I, I volunteer to teach um, HIV-positive people every every week. That's what I do. I go into the YMCA and I teach people um, weightlifting and things. So I, I take HIV stories very seriously. I've seen... I've seen because because I'm very old. I was, around, <laughs> I was around when people considered it a gay disease, a gay illness, and thinking it was God's wrath. So, and as a result, especially in America, it was yeah. it was marginalized for many many years. And that's basically what How to Survive a Plague is about. This is one of several. Um, AIDS-based documentaries that I think is very important because it's very easy for us now that people are living with HIV, very easy for them to, for people to walk away, particularly young people, to think that this is an important, this is an important piece of history. I think it's just as important to preserve gay history as it is uh, health history even. Tell us about else. the uh, the director and what what's the story to why he was drawn to this uh, Well, um, I, I really don't know why he was drawn to that. What do you know? That, that's oh, why I'm that asking was, that was my, I'm sorry. It was one of those, this, this is going to be one of my, I don't know, I should have looked that up kind of things. But uh, I go, I, you know, I go and see films and I watch them and a lot of times I don't actually look up the But it's interesting that this, this documentary is coming up now. Well, it, it is. And I think, I think there is a danger of, um, as I said, of people forgetting. And a lot of times these things are looked at as sort of quaint little cameos that really only interest people that were there at the time. And I think it's actually important because whatever happened to HIV and AIDS in this country or in France or anywhere else can also happen with other diseases that could be in the future. We have a shortish clip from How to Survive a Plague. Plague! We are in the middle of a plague! 40 million infected people is a plague! AIDS is now the leading cause of death. Demonstrators blocked access to buildings. Coalition of gay groups came to shut down the FDA. This government has the resources to deal with the AIDS epidemic and they won't do it unless we force them. I am going to fight them. My patients are going to fight them. And you got them We need our government to save our lives. This isn't going to be cured for years and years and years. I'm going to die from this. From How to Survive a Plague, the final film selection of our guest film reviewer, Karen Krasanovich. Worth seeing that one? Well, I think they're all worth seeing, actually, this week. Those those three are, are really good. And even if you could probably get your money back on Gravity if you really hated it, you know. No, 
I'm glad I saw it. There's going to be. Well, you know, did you see it two, three, two D or three D? Three D. Oh, you oh, can. Oh God, that would two okay, D. That, that, that would blow the budget out though to 105 million dollars and 10 pounds, which is obviously unsupportable. Karen Krasanovich, thank you very much for joining us on the review. And with that, we must bring a close to this episode. It's goodbye from here, from us all here at Midori House, and thanks for listening. Our show today was produced by Katie Bilboa and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and researched by Lillian Hess. Our studio manager was Claire Urban. Georgina Godwin is back in studio now to continue our weekend programming with the curator Monocle's Best of Radio Show, which presents some of the unmissable highlights from the week that was on Monocle 24. But for now, you've been listening to The Review with me, Andrew Muller, and Julian Tobias. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.